Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. Four black young adults charged with hate crimes for abducting and torturing a mentally disabled white teen, 18 years of age, while live-streaming the attack on Facebook. Now, their lawyers, pleading bail, tried to make the case the four were responsible people with jobs, we go to school, one looked after a sibling confined to a wheelchair, bail denied appropriately. If you've seen the video, then number one, it horrifies you, and number two, it angers you. I don't care who you are, where you're from, what your background is, if you look at that video and you consider what happened to that young man, it must anger you. So one of the questions I have is, what do you do? What's the, they're all charged with hate crimes, and it took quite a while for Chicago police and the prosecutors to decide that that's what they're going to do, that they would charge them with a hate crime. But what is the appropriate punishment? I'll be asking you that question, but first, who are these people? What is it that causes somebody, creates the environment, creates the, the, um, the license to behave as they did, as grotesquely and brutally as they did. Dr. Frank Farley is with us, past president of the American Psychological Association and um, a people's professor in the Psychology Today blog. Frank, how do, Happy New Year, and how do four people come together to plot and carry out such a vicious and demeaning act on someone who's not only unsuspecting but also trusting, according to news reports? Is it, is it one person who's the leader or not necessarily? Well, Roy, we don't know for sure, of course, but, uh, and by the way, Happy New Year to you, Roy, and all your listeners. Thank you. Um, so there are these four kids. One of them is a friend of the victim. Uh, they spent a whole day, the two of those, going around in the car, stolen cars, it turns out. Uh, but that it all began with some horseplay, as I understand it, some, you know, play fighting that sort of went south, that just went bad. And uh, then we don't know, but one can speculate. There's a lot of research coming out these days on, on violence contagion. Uh, a new study, in fact, just appeared uh, on that topic. And um, it looks as if violence can be contagious. Uh, some of the numbers in that study, and it deals with teenagers, it's very similar to the perpetrators in this uh, Chicago incident, that teens are 48% more likely to get involved in a serious fight if a friend had done so, and 183% more likely to hurt someone seriously if a friend had done so. So one issue is whether in that apartment in Chicago you've got some kind of uh, violence contagion, somebody started something, and the rest piled on. Another term we often use is emotional contagion or social facilitation. We see it a lot. We see it in flash mobs. Um, in, in sporting events, we'll come to sometimes see it where somebody pushes yeah, but down. Frank, Frank, Frank we're, we're talking about... And everybody starts damaging. We're, we're talking about... This, this was, I mean, there was activity going on in that van that wasn't... I mean, he was being... I think he was being attacked in the van. And then he said, the 18-year-old said, it started as horseplay... And then it deteriorated, disintegrated into what it became. I'm just looking for the ages of these uh, of these four. I think they're in their 20s, some of them. Um, but uh, you, you have four people who commit these grotesque acts, and it really is torture, what they did to him. It's torture. Doesn't at some point one person say, and their lawyers are trying to trying to portray them as being good, decent, upstanding, contributing members of society, even though a couple of them have had run-ins with the law, doesn't at some point one of them say, hey, enough, instead of live-streaming it on Facebook? Uh, don't we hope. But uh, that's hard to do when you're one out of, uh, you know, and there's three others against you on that idea. But none of them did. And so it's hard to stand up sometimes. But, you know, you, you put your finger on what I think is one of the key things, which is moral, moral education, families and schools and communities, putting at the top of the list, 
you know, this kind of behavior, more, you know, moral disengagement, which is what exactly went on here. We need more focus on the moral life, the good life throughout our society, because we're continuing to see this kind of stuff. And also, you know, such things as impulse control, you know, controlling your impulses. The prisons are full of people with poor impulse control. It's one of the key tickets to prison. Yeah, I see. I, I, I think I think this was a case where they clearly planned to do this. This this they had intent to do what they did. Otherwise, would they? Why would they have contacted the mother of the eighteen-year-old, apparently, and asked for for money? There was there was intent here. This is uh, and 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 Frank, I, I only have a minute, but. Do you think that there's is this is this about race? Chicago police had a tough time well, trying to finally say that it, they define it as a hate crime. Uh, Roy, I don't believe in hate crimes. I think that it's a very bad idea to infer the emotion associated with a crime and then add years of prison because of that emotion. That's essentially, you know, mind reading and thought control. We should get away from it. What it is, is identity crime. One group, black against white, white against black, gay against straight, straight against gay, young against old. Those are identity crimes based upon your identity. Right. And to use the term hate crime adds an emotional inference that we somehow or other, the judicial system, know the emotions in your heart at the time you did it, and we're going to add two years to your prison. Well, when they when they use the we word like be afraid F- of that kind of mind Frank, in a democratic society, when they when they use the words and go, force him to say, you know, f white people, f Donald Trump, um, there's a question about whether you know whether, whether race was really at the at the uh, at the core of this this whole horrid incident. That is part of the discussion. It could be, it could be you know, that you have a, an easy victim yeah. and uh, you can control them. You know, control is a big thing in violence. People, uh, often violent people, are in it because of the ability to control yeah. the situation. Jeffrey Dahmer killed over 20 people, and he said the number one reason was he could control them. Yeah. Well, and, it's a... Um, that could be a factor here, too. Yeah, it's a horrid story. Frank, I, I appreciate the time. I went on a little bit too long at the tops, but uh, thank you so much for the time. Always good talking to you, and we'll talk many times, I'm sure, in this new calendar year of ours. Look forward to it, Roy. All the best. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. His name is uh, Esteban Santiago, and as I said earlier, we would have been better off if we'd never heard of Esteban Santiago. Responsible for the death of deaths of five people at Fort Lauderdale Airport yesterday, and uh, wounding of many others. And I was talking to people yesterday, and and I and I and I heard repeatedly, "Gee, you know, I'm a little more nervous about going into, or a little more concerned about going into public places, particularly if they're confined spaces. What 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 should I do? Should I be nervous?" Uh, Ross McLean joins us. Uh, RossMcLeanSecurity.com, former Toronto police officer, worked at the public and government sector and uh, and private sector, uh, helped protect the largest global technology distribution company in the world, and has protected billionaires. Ross, thank you for the time. E- even if you're, a, you know, even if we accept that we're not likely to be at a location which is suddenly going to be under random attack. What are some of the most fundamental things we can do to protect our personal security, whether it's in a parking garage late at night, an airport, or a theater? What's fundamental? Yeah, absolutely, Roy. There are, there are some fundamentals to this. And to, to answer your question off the top about people starting to feel a sense of fear now, uh, perhaps if they're out in some of these places, they're not as sure. What that is, is the reason you'll have fear is because we are seeing more random violence. We are seeing it randomly in public places. But if you don't have an idea about what to do, and you don't have a plan, as I like to say, you are going to find yourself doing what most people do, which is just freezing up and having the chance of becoming a victim. So the first thing you have to do is become aware and think about having a plan, particularly in the places, public places that you spend the most time, near your home, your local mall, local theater, and your workplace. You need a plan with perhaps two different ways of getting out of each of these locations to someplace safety. What do you do if you have kids with you? Same same idea? Same principle? 
Yeah, same idea. What you what you typically have to do if you're if you're a father or a mother, you've got kids with you, is you have to be the lead lookout. So you always make sure that you have a look for them, and you position yourself in a room. We used to have this saying, we call it the cop seat. If you're in a bar or in a restaurant, you always sit so your back is to a wall and you can face and see the doors and where things are coming in. So that the sooner you see them, if something is going on, you can then react if you have a plan. And that's the sort of thing that will save your life. What are some of the indicators, Ross, which would maybe set off alarms for you if you enter a facility? or what, where, At what point would you maybe have some level of concern? Well, you know, it's difficult these days. I mean, certainly if you're over in certain countries in Europe over now, if you're in France or Belgium or Germany, your, your concern is up everywhere you go. Right. If you're over in Turkey, it's up everywhere. Uh, you can have, certainly have concer- uh, concerns in many major cities uh, in Canada. Uh, I mean, in, in Toronto here where I'm based, we've had uh, people shot and killed in restaurants, uh, down in, out, in, out in the streets with guns going off, outside concert venues. So uh, you have to be concerned, I think, just about everywhere these days. You have to have, a, like I said, at least a plan, at least know what to look for, mm-hmm. and then know what you have to do if something happens. And, you know, the key thing you have to do first, uh, Roy, is recognize something's happening, run, conceal yourself, or gain cover. Let me explain the difference between the two, conceal and cover. The thing that every police officer looks for, every... every uh, uh, top security guy looks for is cover. That's something you can get between you and the assailant that is solid that bullets can't get through or can't go through that he can't get to you. The next best is concealment. That might be behind a door, hiding behind a chair or something else where it's a little bit harder to see you, but you're certainly not safe from anything penetrating the chair. So those are the two things that you're looking for and you want to be aware of in your surroundings. So when you walk into a place, you familiarize yourself with your surroundings. You don't just sit in your seat and stare straight ahead. You familiarize yourself with your surroundings. You know where the exits are. You anticipate where trouble might come from if it's going to happen. And then you have a plan on how to respond. Now, now Ross, there's also the, the question about whether... If it starts, whether you should rush the individual, as those four Americans did on the train in Europe, and they took down this terrorist who had the submachine gun that misfired, or should you just try to uh, get out of there and, and, and not, not try to confront the individual or individuals? You know, that's based on, that's based on, your, own, on the own in, your own person as an individual, if you have a skill set, for instance. So if there is someone who has a skill set, uh, like the ones who rushed the train, they were trained Marines. They, they knew what they had to do, and they went and they did it. If you're, if you're a, a, simply a civilian, you don't have any training, you're not in a position to know what to do even if you rush the person, you don't do it at all. Don't even bother with it. Get away from it as quick as you can. Call for help. Uh, don't involve yourself if you don't have the skill set to do it. But that's, that's an individual call. Right. And I, I'll also uh, say with that, you know, it's run, hide, and if they're on top of you and you've got no choice, fight. No choice, you fight. Ross, thank you so much for the time. Ross McLean Security, uh, dot com on, on, the, on, the, on the web. And we'll talk again. Thank you, Ross. Have a great day, sir. Thanks. Thanks, Roy. Ross McLean, uh, security.com. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. A week ago, Alberta introduced a provincial carbon tax. Many of the pundits like it. Better than they like the Ontario cap-and-trade scheme, which is partnered by Quebec and California. That's just weird. Uh, Although, you know, I I said pundits like it. Many in the provinces, Alberta and Ontario, are unhappy about these taxes and concerned businesses will flee and jobs will disappear. The question is, how will Canada's business community respond to higher taxes and more expensive goods and services, massively increasing electricity prices, and particularly since the United States is going to drop its corporate tax rate to 15%, and the Americans will have no carbon tax. I'm not sure all of this is registered on our prime minister yet. I'm not sure that that's caught up with him at his Bahamian vacation. Tom Caldwell is the chairman of Caldwell Securities in Toronto, He's past governor of the Toronto Stock Exchange, 
and he's recognized as one of the world's foremost investors in securities exchanges. And Tom, I keep saying, and I say it again, you're our, you're our island of sanity. <laughs> well, Roy, I promise I won't cry or walk out. If that <laughs> there, there's a book waiting to be written, you know. I, 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 I may do that one day. Well, there's so much that can be said. Usually when there's so much that can be said, it's probably better to say nothing because you're not going to convince anybody. <laughs> Maybe. I, I was calculating uh, a while back how many interviews I've done, and I think it's around 70,000. Good for you. Good yeah, for you. and I've survived each and every one of them. That's a great career. Yeah, I've, uh, well, let's not talk about it in the past tense. I, uh, I still I still enjoy doing this. And I are still here. I, mean, <laughs> I still I still enjoy it, Tom. Uh, when you look at uh, Ontario and Alberta, Alberta with the uh, carbon tax, Ontario with cap and trade, and and that weird combination of uh, Quebec and California, and Ontario, and has which has the Auditor General concerned that when it comes time for reporting, that Ontario. Uh, uh, Quebec and, and California may fudge the numbers because they'll use all three uh, sets of emissions reductions, if there are any, and they'll apply them to, the, to, to each individual constituency. When you look at these, these two initiatives, the, the carbon tax and the cap and trade for Alberta and, and Ontario, what do you see? What do you, how, how's the business community viewing this? Well, first off, I see chaos. You know, Canada is a big country geographically, but it's not from a population perspective. And another uh, truism I would I would provide to governments: whatever California is doing, go the other way. Don't do it. The the, the two regimes make it very difficult. But it, it's interesting. Every politician is scrambling to look as if they're environmentally friendly, even if it's costing taxpayers significant amounts of money. Example: the province of Ontario is buying carbon credits. Uh, I don't know what the cost is. Somewhere, and the number I hear is about 140, 150 million dollars. That's that's just going for window dressing. It's not doing anything about environmental. You're buying credits from someplace else to say, "Haha, we've reached our environmental targets." And that 140 million, I know about trading carbon credits and whatever. <laughs> it's probably going into the hands of some Russian oligarch for Pete's sake. You're buying, literally, you're buying smoke or the lack thereof, and. You know, our government seems to have very little consideration of what the fundamentals of an economy are. Eventually, you, governments, cities, countries, provinces are all in competition with each other, with the U.S., with states, etc. And you reach a point where you're, you're trying to uh, appease one particular lobby group, and you can be doing pretty serious structural damage in the process. I think we're doing that. Um. When you look at the province of Ontario specifically, and and you consider these massive electricity price hikes that are, go hand in hand with with cap and trade, I was reading a column by Anthony Fury in the Toronto Sun uh, day before yesterday, and he talked about he wrote about a company that is an, a subsidiary of an American company, and they received a bill for electricity for a hundred and twenty things so one hundred and twenty three thousand dollars for uh, either one month or two months. But the delivery cost was 100000 and the, the actual electricity cost was 23000 And the individual, the manager of the company, will not, or is trying not to let the home office know, because his concern is that if they find out in the U.S. what's happening, they'll close the Ontario company and just move the jobs to the United States. Well, there's going to be enough motivation in that direction anyway. Uh, we seem to be kind of poking that stick in people's eye. The You know, our hydro bills are... A result of nothing other than uh, mismanagement, misgovernment, and corruption. I mean, we spent tremendous amounts of money buying high-cost energy from econ- uneconomical sources. Oh, yeah, it's great to have wind power and solar power, etc. And uh, you know, the sooner we can move in that direction, that's great. But to get away ahead of the curve and start wasting money on it that costs tremendous amounts, and, and, and these are jobs we're going to be talking about. I think Toronto, or should I say Ontario and Quebec have significant problems coming in the manufacturing sector, and that's not only because of Mr. Trump, but these items that you're mentioning as well. There are problems coming here, and no one seems to see it coming like a railroad train, for God's sake. And yet you have the Premier of Ontario simply saying that, well, she made a mistake when it comes to electricity, and you have citizens of the province, half a million can't afford their hydro bills, but you have have people, real people, choosing between food 
and clothing and heating because they can't afford the electricity prices that Kathleen Wynne and her government have have created. There's no, there's no need for them. They're not doing any good, but they've created them, and the premier says, well, it's just a mistake. Well, it's easier for her to discount it, but I do think there's a lot of angst being created because of flawed policies, the timing of flawed policies, and basically corruption. If you look at the plants we were building and canceled and penalties being paid for this, this happens all the time. Hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars just thrown out the window. And the interesting thing is that whenever the Auditor General's report comes out federally and the counterpart in Ontario, nobody listens to it. Everybody ignores it. Oh, well, that happens because we, we, we uh, our, our dealings with governments result in just basically low expectation. But I do think the, the current government in Ontario, and, I, and I, I'm, I don't care, I'll vote liberal conservative, it doesn't matter to me, but they've transcended our low expectation barrier as far as I'm concerned. I mean, there really, really has to be a, a wake-up call for whoever is going to be running the province. We're in a tough competitive game, and we're setting ourselves up for some real difficult times. And that means people, as you said, people, jobs, employment. That's yeah. and, and yet the people who are delivering these taxes, like Justin Trudeau with his magical carbon tax, for which, as Brad Wall, the Premier of Saskatchewan, pointed out twice on this program recently, the Prime Minister admitted that he'd done no sort, not no financial impact study of any kind. So you've got that. You've got Canada with a 34% corporate tax and carbon tax, if I have my numbers correctly. And the United States will, under Donald Trump, have 15% corporate tax and no carbon tax. That doesn't, I mean, it's not, it's not it's not uh, rocket science to figure out where people are going to park their businesses. Oh, absolutely. The, the challenge is our, our, our prime minister wants everybody to like him. And when you come out in leadership on that basis, you, you, you cave into almost every pressure group or loud voices that appeal to you. And, you know, I always say as a leader, if everybody likes you, you're doing something wrong. Uh, you mentioned his tour across the country. I noticed something in the paper today that struck me as very strange. Uh, Trudeau is not attending um, President Trump's inauguration. Now, you know, people, oh, well, we don't like Trump. I, I don't want to even hear that guff from people. Like it or not, he's going to be the president, he's going to be running the store, and he's going to have an impact on Canada. Ergo, sooner or later, as Ariel Sharon said many years ago, you've got to talk to your enemies. You've got to establish a relationship. For him to uh, play the game his dad did, you know, poke the Americans uh, in the nose from time to time, is not going to work this time around. We have to develop dialogue, uh, discussion, where you can have a voice in Washington. And starting out with that, and, and again, listen, I'm not a fan of Trump. He's in many ways is an odious character. But one thing I do know about him is he does keep grudges. And if you don't do that, I'm not saying you dance to them and you, and you pander to the man, but there's certain protocols that you should do. And when you don't, it's considered an insult and he won't forget it. And Hillary and uh, Bill Clinton will be there. Barack Obama will be there. Michelle Obama will be there. The Bushes, I think, are going to be there. There's no reason for our prime minister to play the tough guy because he's not dealing with an overweight, uh, aging senator in the ring now. Well, he, well he's, <laughs> he's not a tough guy anyway. Despite no, he's the not. Fact, you know, he has the other little punch-up kind of thing. You know, a, a tough guy, tough isn't what you can inflict. It's what you can endure. And basically, he's got to go and say... Just go and be there. You don't have to run around and kiss his ring or anything else like that. But we have to establish a dialogue to get discussions going early because we're going to have lots of stuff to talk about. And if you decide you're going to, uh, we're going to be independent. Like his dad played that card, and uh, now he's playing it against Nixon. And uh, uh, mercifully, we followed up with having better relations um, with Ronald Reagan uh, and Mulroney. But uh, the problem here is that if he starts out on this basis, we're going to have an uphill discussion going on yeah, in frankly, every issue, from softwood lumber to autos, and the scary thing is autos, like it or not. Well, I want to talk to you about that when we come back. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Here's an, an email, or not, not an email, a tweet from uh, at E. Grabotsky. Uh, I heard that Toyota's pulling some production out of Ontario and moving it to Mexico. That would have been last year that announcement was made, and it's the Toyota Corolla. What has also happened is that Donald Trump has fired a shot across Toyota's bows now and and is talking about if those Corollas that are going to be built in Mexico are going to be brought into the United States, that accompanying them is going to be a large tariff. And Mr. Trump, of course, delivered that message to Ford with the Result that Ford decided that it was going to invest in its in its uh, plant in, uh, in in Michigan, seven hundred million dollars and seven hundred more jobs. Um, 
Tom Caldwell, chairman of Caldwell Securities, is with us. Uh, Tom, what about Mr. Trump's actions? He, he, he can't he, he can't govern uh, company by company by company over four years. Or, or is it a case where if you fire five or six shots across the bows, you send the message and the rest will fall in line? I think so. I mean, the, the Ford, uh, they got a lot of free press out at the presence in favor of them. If the Ford president calls the uh, president of the United States after his inauguration, he's going to get through in the line. So I think it's, it's, a, it's a very clear message for the whole automobile industry. It isn't just taking company by company. You just need, to, you just need to, a few companies to make an example of them. And the rest of them will cave right away, and 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 they have to, they they will have to do that. So, uh, it's it's uh, it is managing by bullying to some degree, and that seems to be part of his style. Um, uh, how successful it is in the long run, it's hard to say, because eventually countries will retaliate to the extent that they can. Now, what what impact that has in the U.S. may not be any. I don't know, but uh, you the the danger with this style is it can precipitate a trade war, which of course. Uh, presaged the Great Recession, so the Great Depression, should I say? So there, there's a—it's a tricky game he's playing, but he's got some—he's uh, got some runway to pull it off for the time being. He, uh, through his press secretary, this past Tuesday, when the issue of Canada's automakers and Canada's auto sector was brought up, and the history of Canada's auto sector with the United States, his press secretary said that uh, as far as um, uh, Canada's facilities are concerned. They will also be subject to, quote, America first, end quote, policy. Yeah, there's, no, there's no doubt about that. When he had his meeting with the group of industrial leaders in, uh, and the tech community uh, a month or two ago, uh, he said, there's only two things you have to know, only two instructions I have for American industry, buy American and hire American, and that's it, nothing else. That doesn't leave a lot of running room for niceties of, well, we had this trade agreement and we're your closest partner and... By the way, our prime minister is a really nice guy. Uh, none of that matters. Those two statements encompass everything. And make no mistake, our auto sector will come into the crosshairs. Uh, to what extent he can do anything, given the treaties that exist, that's, of course, another matter. But there will be the pressure to impact. Uh, I had a luncheon with the president of Ford Canada some months ago, and uh, she was indicating that the real competition for uh, Canada is not America, it's of course Mexico. We lose jobs to Mexico just as Americans do. So how we can present that point. But these subtleties have to be communicated through dialogue and we should be working at starting to establish who we're going to be chatting with down there and establishing a degree of goodwill. I don't think that's come into the um, consciousness of our people in Ottawa yet. No, and as you pointed out, Mr. Trump has a long memory and quick access to Twitter. Absolutely. He, he, uh, <laughs> it's like all, you know, he, he should be an Irishman. We forget everything but the grudge. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Always great talking to you. Happy Thank New you. Year. All the best. Thanks. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. All right. Did Russian hackers, under the direct orders of President Vladimir Putin, did they conspire to assist Mr. Trump to win the U.S. election? A mostly classified report, according to the Democratic Party, appears to support hackers, and even some Republicans are saying that it does, support the idea that uh, hackers obtained and distributed through WikiLeaks the now infamous emails from Hillary Clinton and John Podesta and, and more of the Democrats. The dams are crying foul. President-elect Donald Trump, who's seen the full report, remains unconvinced. And what's next before the January 20th inauguration of Donald Trump as the 45th president of the United States? And how are Americans responding to all of this? Fran Coombs is the managing editor of Rasmussen Reports, rasmussenreports.com. And uh, Fran, happy uh, Happy New Year and just a few days left now. What, are the, what, what happens on, on January 21st? Does the crying automatically stop? Well, no, I mean, there are obviously, remember, there's two groups of people here, Roy, that are concerned about this. One is the Democrats who are still trying to explain to themselves how, how their queen lost the election. Uh, and just cannot accept the fact that the American voters did not want her. Uh, and there's the people like John McCain and Lindsey Graham who missed the Cold War, uh, and they just yeah, they they're just dying to ramp up another Cold War with the so the former Soviet Union. Uh, so there, I think you know you're still going to hear about this uh, from the usual from the usual suspects on both sides. 
Uh, but as far as Trump's concerned, I mean, as you, I'm sure you saw the news report, the latest thing he has said is that anybody who thinks it's a bad idea for the United States to have better relations with Russia is a fool. And, you know, I personally agree with him, and a lot of people I talk to feel the same way. I mean, war with Russia, what's that all about? Yeah, no one's actually saying the Russians affected the, the voting on November the 8th. And I see from uh, your polling at Rasmussen, only 21% of Americans believe that Russians affected the outcome of the November 8th vote at all. Well, actually, that, that's, it's, not even, it's smaller than that. Out of the, the gr- group of people, I think it's something like, I can't remember totally, but I believe it was 39% of people believe, of all voters now, I mean, the Democrats believe it more strongly, but 39% of all voters believe that outside, uh, outside Hillary Clinton lost because of outside factors. Of that 39%, 21% attributed to Russian interference. So, I mean, you know, there's not a, again, if you go and scratch the average Democrat, they're going to blame James Comey, the FBI director. They're going to blame so-called fake news. They're going to blame the Russians. They're they're still casting about for any reason at all but the fact that voters didn't like Hillary Clinton. No, she was a bad candidate. And it was was also bad on the issues, Roy. She was bad on the issues that Americans care about. And it was also a verdict on the eight years of Barack Obama's stewardship of the White House. Don't think there's any question about that. But again, you know, when you look at these reports that that came out, I mean, I mean, you know, here's a sentence right out of the the report, the, the hacking report: CIA and FBI have high confidence in this judgment that the Russians tried to interfere. NSA has moderate confidence. So right there, you've got our top three spy agencies that are not in total agreement on this. And I was struck by this sentence in CNN's report. U.S. intelligence officials reiterated that there is no single intercepted communication that qualifies as a smoking gun on Russia's intention to benefit Trump's candidacy or to claim credit for doing so. No single intercepted communication. So, again, this is all, look at all this stuff. This is our interpretation of it. Fran, what's the reaction to Barack Obama making major policy decisions during the final days in office? And then part two of that question is, what's the level of confidence that Donald Trump will uh, be a positive influence uh, on the United States? Well, I think right now the United States is still suffering, uh, for lack of a better word, you know, partisan, uh, the, the partisanship disease of the election. So, most of our surveys are showing on every single issue you can think of. Uh, Obama taking these last-minute actions, uh, the resolution on Israel, the, uh, uh, the, the criticisms of Russia. It's pretty much evenly divided because the Democrats still overwhelmingly think that everything Obama does is, is holy, and the Republicans think that everything Obama does and that the Democrats do is evil. So it's uh, Trump uh, basically... Trump has to get into office and do something. And I think right now everything is supposition. Uh, he, you know, we know what he ran on, uh, so people are kind of reacting to that. But they have to see what it means in their lives. I think certainly, you know, if you've got a 401k in this country or any kind of investments in this country, uh, they're going, they're rocketing through the ceiling. So from an economic standpoint, I would imagine people are pretty happy these days. What about the um, uh, the relationship bit, uh, among Americans, different racial groups, ethnic groups, linguistic groups, uh, cultural groups? How frayed is the relationship or are the relationships? Well, I'd say it's very, I mean, the racial tension, uh, although I think it's lessened a bit, believe it or not, since the election, but I, um, but I just anecdotally I say that. But I think under Obama, he raised racial tensions in this country to levels I haven't seen since the late 60s. Uh, it truly was worrisome. Uh, he, as much as he talked about healing the nation, he was doing exactly the opposite, as I'm sure you're, many of your listeners well know. And uh, but again, I think with, if the economy gets better, there's more jobs. People feel positive. I mean, Obama was he? He didn't believe in American exceptionalism. Yeah. And Fran, sure Fran, I have about I have about ten seconds. Okay, I'm sure many of your listeners don't either. But that that's there's a view in America that America is the best and brightest place, and I think Trump plays to that. There'll be uh, much more opportunity to, of course, follow Mr. Trump uh, as he takes office on the 20th. Fran, thank you, and again, Happy New Year to you. Same to you, Roy. Take care. Bye-bye. Fran Coombs, Managing Editor, Rasmussen Reports. We're back after this. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. This is serious business. Very serious. Following the... uh, 
the apparent murder, murders and, and suicide of military veteran Lionel Desmond and his wife, daughter, and mother in Alberta. As uh, um, Lionel Desmond struggled with PTSD following a deployment to Afghanistan, where I understand where I read there was constant firefights in the last three months that he was there. We're joined by two former and one current member of Canada's military. Uh, one former and uh, the current CAF member are being treated abysmally by the military brass and the federal government. The former CAF member uh, struggling with PTSD and uh, abandoned by the uh, Forces and Veterans Affairs Canada. And you'll, you'll hear his story in more detail in just a moment. But I just want to say this. This, this, this struck me so uh, directly. He wandered this country for two years, moving 17 times, seeking help. And the current CAF member, well, let's hear about, uh, about both of them. You'll hear both of them in a moment. But let's hear about them first from Sergeant Major retired Barry Westholm, uh, you've heard Barry on this program many times. He defends and works with military veterans and current members of the forces battling PTSD. Um, he's a former member of the Airborne, and uh, he was the chief non-commissioned officer of the Joint Personnel Service Unit where they're supposed to deliver help to soldiers in need. And Barry gave up his 30-plus year military career, resigned from the military, over what he saw at the JPSU in Eastern Ontario. Barry, always great talking to you. Um, I, I wish the stories were, were more encouraging, but they need to be told because we're talking about lives of people who defend this country, defend our way of life, and are ready to risk and, and, and give up their lives for that ideal, and that includes you. Good to talk to you again. Yeah, hi, Roy, and, and I agree with what you're saying. Uh, you know, I appreciate being on your show, but I really wish I didn't have to be on your show, but the circumstances... They don't seem to be changing, and, and, and here we are, and, and now we're facing this tragedy. It's a national tragedy right? Um, right. in Nova Scotia. Yes, now, sir. to get right, right to this, uh, I don't know if the situation in Nova Scotia could have been avoided. That's almost impossible to say. But I do know that the system designed to support transitioning families is broken and has been since 2009 or 10. This is not information that's unknown to the government, Veterans Affairs Canada, and the Canadian Forces. They all know the transitional system was failing in 2010, and they have yet to address it, although they have always had the ability and the means to do so. Now, uh, the Desmond family should have been afforded a strong one-on-one -on -one connection to the Canadian Armed Forces and Veterans Affairs Canada through the Joint Personnel Support Unit during and after the transition. And looking at the staffing model for Nova Scotia, something which I just found out today is four years out of date and inaccurate, um, I found it impossible for the JPSU to cover the area of responsibility of nearly half a million square kilometers with really only about a half a dozen staff members. This stated, the support, if any, available to the Desmond family was minimal in the extreme. So now the question becomes, why wasn't the mandated support in place uh, for the Desmonds since everybody knew that it was lacking? And why when would this have had to happen if it was in place? Those are the questions only the Chief of Defense Staff can answer and answer them you should. Now to the guests on your show, um, they've made it through uh, the Joint Personnel Support Unit uh, just barely. Uh, your first guest was ejected from the JPSU in a psychotic state, totally unsupported and in crisis. As you mentioned, he wandered the country for two years and is now working to get his life back together. Uh, he has a challenging story, as the benefits he would have normally been afforded but couldn't use on release, time expired. In supporting his case to get them back, I've used an example of a soldier being in a coma who wakes up one day to find that his benefits expired because he couldn't use them. This is the exact thing that faces your first guest. Uh, this is unacceptable, and uh, this particular person has been fighting with tenacity, still injured, inch by inch, to take advantage of the benefits so he can move on with his life. Uh, to add insult to injury, the JPSU applied remedial measures on him, an administration tool, totally out of context of what they're supposed to be used for, and in a punitive manner. That is to say, they were punishing him with this thing. He's been trying to get those documents removed from his file, as any person would, I would. And in response, the latest commanding officer, Brigadier General, denied his request in the name of military protocol. Your second guest is still in the CAF and also in the Joint Personnel Support Unit, and I, I admire her bravery for coming on the air. Uh, this person has been on the receiving end of the JPSU system with some extremely serious injuries, has had an extremely tough time getting support 
while in the JPSU where she remains, and most recently, just before Christmas, her family was informed by the JPSU that their extension request to remain in her military quarters was denied, and she would have to vacate by the end of January upon her release. This essentially would put a family out into the cold, because we know that the benefits that come to them are sometimes delayed by months. So this is what these people have to put up with. That's what she has to put up with. And the Canadian forces, however, have since uh, reversed that decision after external pressure was uh, applied to them. But again, the question must be asked, why is the JPSU treating injured soldiers like that? Yeah, and Barry, and, Barry just before you introduce them, yep. um, remedial measures, that's when, uh, when, when commanding officers or officers uh, determine or decide, not determine, but decide that a member of, uh, in this case, the Navy, uh, has not lived up to something or other that they believe they should live up to. Could be the your haircut. Who knows? Could be, yeah. Could be your haircut, quite literally. And that can trail you around for the rest of your life and affect you for the rest of your life. Well, it sure can. And they're not designed for people that are leaving the military. They're designed for somebody that's starting out their career in the military or has a long career in the military to go, and they're making um, some bad decisions with their career. Remedial measures bring them back into line, and, and they're quite so serious. Uh, the ultimate remedial measure is dismissal from the Canadian forces, which this person was threatened with while he was in the JPSU and while he was injured. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Barry, uh, you've told us a bit about, about uh, our guests. Uh, would you introduce uh, them to us and us to them, please? Yeah, sure, Greg. Uh, I will, Roy. Uh, what I'll do is I'll just uh, let them introduce themselves. Uh, sure. With that, I'll turn the uh, the mic over to uh, um, British Columbia, and uh, I'll, I'll let this thing get going. Okay. So, who's in BC? Uh, hello there, uh, Roy. How are you? Uh, Greg Swetkowski here, leading seaman retired. Yes, sir. Uh, pleased, to t- pleased to meet you over the phone, and, uh, and, and thanks for your service, Greg. Thank you. What can you tell us about what can you tell us about your situation? Uh, well, first I would like to take a moment of time to sort of acknowledge and, and maybe honor uh, and grieve the situation what developed in, uh, in in Nova Scotia, the tragedy there, the murder suicide. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm sad to say I'm I'm not surprised by this. Uh, in, in previous conversations with Barry, I think we've seen that coming. It was just a matter of time that there will be blood spilled. Uh, the situation across the country from coast to coast is, is catastrophic right now. People who are still serving and are suffering from uh, mental illnesses, PTSD, operational stress, injury, etc. People who are released are struggling and waiting uh, for access to, uh, to benefit and support. Uh, we see an alarming level of indifference on all levels of government. And uh, in, in my personal situation, it just culminated what Barry mentioned. Uh, <clears throat> I started feeling uh, I participated in two uh, kind of a pre-key uh, PTSD programs recently, back-to-back, one in November, one in December. And uh, I realized with the clarity how poorly I was treated by the unit that I belong to in Halifax, the GPU IPC organization. Uh, so I requested uh, that some of the remedial measures I was subjected to, I was basically called an administrative burden uh, because I fought hard to keep my career. And then when I realized I will not save the career to at least uh, try to uh, get to a point, uh, 10 years of, of the service that was the key to provide me with the, uh, you know, the reduced uh, annuity and the medical uh, coverage for my dependents. And uh, I was supposed to be originally released three months prior to the 10 year anniversary. When I, when I learned of that fact, I put all the stops and I ended up pushing pretty hard. You know, I was also really sick at that time and over medicated. So uh, some of my uh, emails and attempts to stay in the military a little bit longer got out of control and included uh, emailing chief of defense staff directly. All the people organization along the way knew that I was really sick and my behavior was uh, erratic and unpredictable, and uh, nothing was done. I was abandoned by the case manager. Uh, at one point, I was not allowed at the uh, base hospital. I was treated more like a security threat than uh, somebody who needs medical attention. And uh, for I'm still here to speak to you today. 
and uh, Desmond's family is gone. And it really breaks my heart that this happened. And I carry a tremendous amount of guilt that, you know, maybe if I had dealt with my PTSD sooner or, uh, you know, were more vocal, done more, more visible, I could have uh, helped this man, you know, if I had a chance to have a conversation with him. Maybe I could have shared with him my experiences. Uh, you know, I went through a period of time when I wanted to die myself really badly. And I was doing everything in direction to expedite the process. I'm still here, and I have a new appreciation for life, you know, and the importance of being here, being here for the families. What is really saddening about the situation in Nova Scotia, I, I'll speculate a little bit here. I think that uh, Mr. Desmond was probably so hopeless and discouraged that he didn't see an option, you know, his own suicide would still leave his family vulnerable and without any support from the uh, agencies that should be helping us, whether it's D&D or Veterans Affairs Canada. And that's what we see now. You know, it's so disturbing, very, so disturbing to hear you say that, you know, you you were you were feeling the feelings that you, that you had to live with and were abandoned by the JPSU and the military. And I understand the the, the the sense of family where you where you want, you know, you wanted you would have wanted to help the, the Nova Scotia family, and and there's that there is that sense of family in the military, and and it's 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 I, I, the word disturbing isn't sufficiently um, it doesn't do the job, but it, uh, Barry, I'm, I just I just find it's I'm, you get heart sick when you hear what happens to members of our military. Uh, when, when they're pushed out, when they're pushed out so they can't get their pensions, when they're pushed out because of health reasons, then they're not taken care of. And this has been going on for years. Well, could you, could yeah, you, yeah, could... Roy, and, and, uh, to, to give you a right up-to-date example, uh, you know, I'd like to turn the phone over, as I could, to, uh, to Alberta right now, uh, to your next guest. Okay. okay, absolutely. Hi. Hi. How are you? Good. How, well, how are you? I'm uh, extremely nervous, so you got to bear with me, it's... and uh, I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> just, just tell us what, uh, what, what, what do we need to know about what happened to you? Mm. What do you want to share with us? <laughs> um, well, number one, uh, again, my thoughts go out to, to all our brothers and sisters and everyone that's affected by this tragedy, and it's, it's devastating. And... Um, Greg, I frickin' hear ya. And uh, me, well, I mean, we're just gonna, I'm just gonna discuss, I guess, the current crisis, I mean, that Barry touched on, on my housing. Um, uh, I had requested uh, an extension because due to uh, circumstances that, that had nothing to do with myself, I was unable to get mental health care for two and a half years. Um, now, luckily, for the past few months, I've been going to the OSI clinic, and, and we have a diagnosis of PTSD and, you know, meds, med consults and so on, so I'm getting help. But I had requested an extension so that my my release would not be right in the middle of me just, you know, possibly getting on new meds, getting help, getting, you know, just some help because I'm a mess and uh, well JPSU did not support that for one so um, yeah it was denied and during it was October of last year at the same time I had request for uh, additional six months in my PMQ just so that I have some some normalcy still to figure things out right and um, finally December 21st I got a decision and um, also was uh, made aware that the decision was no at first, but as Barry says, he put a little bit of pressure was put on somebody and the decision was changed. They were going to give me this December 21st. My release date is January 25th. I've got no direction on a move on anything. And they were going to turn me down. They were going to turn you down on staying, on, on maintaining your housing. For just a period of time while you adjust to life, not yeah, just life outside the military, but just adjust to life. Yeah, and it, it's also, in, I mean, if I'm not mistaken, it's somewhere in the regs that injured or ill members, injured or ill members 
I mean, are given this this option, you know. So there was, and there was no reason. It was not justifiable in any way, shape, or form. So have they given you what? Just have they given you a number of months? Well, how long have they given you? Six months was my my request. Six months. And it has now been approved. Thank goodness. And that six months means, give you, you at least have an opportunity. Exactly, exactly, to adjust to being a, a civilian. I'm, I'm going from, my case is a little different. I've spent the past five years with the JPSU. That's why I said, where do you want me to begin? Because my case is uh, a little different. And, and yeah. Barry, yeah. Barry, this isn't, not I mean, it's not, it's, it's not just Greg and our caller, uh, you know, our military member, member of the military, the armed forces in, in Alberta. It, it, these stories, these cases are, are right across Canada. Oh, I could have, I could have. Give you a person from every province, from Newfoundland to Vancouver Island, all with with similar stories that that affected him personally in a tragic way, all with a unit that was meant to support them. And you know, when I look at what's going on in Alberta, I mean, they're, they were going to kick this military family out injured in the middle of winter. You know, we have Absolutely we have a no we we have a minute, and we're going to talk many times again because we're going to follow up. But in that minute we have left. What do they have to do most fundamentally, Barry? What, what does the JPSU and what does the Canadian military and the Department of Veterans Affairs have to do most fundamentally right oh, now? They've got all the answers, Roy. All they have to do is, uh, uh, I hate to say it, man up and get it done. It's Everything's ready to go. They have just got to pull the trigger to get the JPSU working right. It's all there, and it, it's a, an amazing unit. If they follow the original guidelines and, and the way it was drawn up, all this, all this doesn't have to happen. Okay. Yeah. What we'll do is we're going to stay in touch, and we'll have you back. I'm Greg back, and our and our military member from Alberta and Barry. And thank you all three for your service to this country and for your dedication to Canada. You're the ones who who are willing to sacrifice everything, and this country owes you. It's not the other way around. Right, take care, Roy. Thank, thank you, guys. All the best. Well, thank you for having us. We're, we're we're going to stay in we're going to stay in touch with um, with Greg in BC and with our military member in, uh, in in Alberta. I don't want to use her name because she's still in the, in the military. And, of course, Barry. And we may have something for you tomorrow as well. Not sure yet. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.